Hello, my name is Sandy Adamitis, the social media director for the Page International Screenwriting Awards, and your host for the Writer's Hangout, a podcast that celebrates the many stages of writing, from inspiration to the first draft, revising, getting a project made, and everything in between. We'll talk to the best and the brightest in the entertainment industry and create a space where you can hang out, learn from the pros, and have fun. Hey writers, it's Sandy. As promised, here is part two and the conclusion of The Comic's Daughter with Carrie Friedman. Last week, we discussed Carrie's fascinating younger life, which included murder and the mafia. In this episode, we chatted about Carrie's writing journey and her mentors. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I recommend you do. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll be here when you get back, I promise. Are they gone? Okay. Quick review for those still here. Carrie Friedman wrote an R-rated coming-of-age story. Her father was a Chicago stand-up, and her whole family became involved in this horrible murder. Carrie is currently writing the screenplay for The Comic's Daughter, and a producer-director is involved. Warning, because of technical difficulties, the show starts mid-conversation. Okay. Let's start the show. So your mentor is very famous. I think our listeners are going to recognize his name. It is David Mamet, and he's best known for Glengarry, Glen Ross, a play that won him the Pulitzer. My favorite movie was State and Maine that he did because it was a light comedy, and he's not known for light comedy. And oh, right. he wrote Wag the Dog, which is kind of a famous political comedy. Just a whole stream of credits. So I met him. He was 23, and I would go up to this theater and flirt. And he caught my eye right away because it was really different. And so, you know, I wrangled him, actually. And then we we dated. We were kind of sweethearts. And I was young. And he was like the first really legitimate boyfriend. And I just couldn't believe how smart he was. And he had a huge influence in my life. So the thing only was about three months. And then he went off to finish college and he was still a roommate with William H. Macy. They go back that far. That was his roommate. And then he just went on to become this big name. Yeah. And he encouraged you to go to college, correct? He is the one who said said to me, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I don't know. Because I didn't have that kind of upbringing, Sandy. Nobody was like, well, let's get you ready for something. What are you going to do? Right. It just, you know, I was like feral in a way. And I mean, if I thought I could do something, I was told, oh, you probably can't. You know, mm-hmm. you're too this, you're too that. The only thing I got was you're a very nice person, but you don't have what it takes. Did he give you any tips? Later on, because he was very much beginning to write. And he, I mean, it's hilarious to think that I would sit in his bedroom and he'd hand me three pages and say, hey, I just wrote this for acting class. Can you imagine? I saw this early writing before he even blossomed. So I watched his career throughout his life. I had a kind of a crush on him all those years, like the guy who got away, you know? Mm. And then I saw him getting more and more and more famous. I think I wrote him once or twice and he wrote me back. And then he moved to California. Now I'm all grown up, okay? 
And he moved to California and he stayed in touch with a lot of the guys, the street guys that were in his movies. And, you know, he brought them along. But one of the guys has a birthday party and David comes by himself to the birthday party. Hadn't seen him in 18 years. And he was very warm, very engaging, you know, happy to see you, blah, blah, blah. And at that time, he didn't have a lot of contacts in California. He was kind of finding his way and he had more time. And so uh, I said, I've got something that I want to write and I'd love to talk to you about it. Can we have lunch? So he did. He had lunch. We met for lunch. And the first lunch, I said, well, this thing happened and I want to write it. So I give him like the little shortcut and he goes, it's great. You should write it. And I said, I don't know where to begin. So these are the three things he told me that I think are good for any writer. And I really feel, once again, he opened a door for me because what he told me really helped me. So he said, I said to him, literally, David, this is just a really interesting bunch of circumstances, but I don't know if there's a story here. He says to me, well, if there were a story there, what would it be? (laughs) And I paused and I was like, that's just about the most fantastic thing anybody's ever asked me because it left me with this open-ended playground. If there were a story there, what would it be? So I want to say to everybody, it kind of took me back to when we played, you know, when we played in the sandbox, he didn't limit me. He opened it up. So that was one thing he said to me, which was incredibly helpful. And he said, you know, when you're telling somebody about this, just act like you're sitting in a bar, having a beer, and you're just telling a guy that about this thing that happened. That's all you're doing. You're just sitting in a bar, having a drink, telling somebody this story. The last one was very simple. He said, write the story you want to write. Write the story you want to write. So, you know, he kind of gave me permission in that meeting. But the open-ended question, if there were a story there, what would it be? I have to say that I think that was pretty brilliant. It's such a way to just open up your mind, no? Well, I found the through line through that question, you know, the people that are listening might, it's very daunting to start a new project. It's really daunting, okay? It's like, oh my God. And I just started to keep track of, oh, that could be a chapter. Oh, that could be a chapter. Oh, that. And I just started tracking. Brilliant advice. Thank you, Mr. Mamet. I always like the E.B. White quote, a writer who waits for ideal conditions under which to work will die without putting a word on page. What are your writing habits, Carrie? Well, I actually feel like I had writer's block for about 40 years. I really, I really sort of did. And a book that helped me more than any other book is by Stephen Pressfield. It's pretty famous. It's called The War of Art. And he makes it so it's really easy to read the book. There's just a few sentences on each page. But he really brought it down home and he goes, you got to sit down. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to sit down. 
And but it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. So sometimes I would trick myself and I'd say, if you sit down for 10 minutes, you're going to feel so good. So why don't you do it? Because on the other side of it, you're going to be so happy. And then the 10 would turn into 20 or 30 minutes. Yes. But I would trick myself saying, you know, it's kind of like I had a teacher once. It was the best class I ever took. It was called, If You Can Talk, You Can Write. It was at UCLA. But he said, have you ever met anybody that came out of the gym and said, "Um, why did I go to the gym? (laughs) Because nobody ever regrets going to the gym and nobody ever regrets getting work done in terms of writing. Exactly. Even if you write, don't write good pages, you, you got something done, you know? So he helped me and I had a full-time job working in Malibu, which is 35 minutes away, 45 minutes away. And so I would get up early, like five, which isn't that difficult for me. I'm kind of a morning person and I'd put some time in on the writing and then I'd go to work and then I get up the next day really early maybe gave myself two days off. And if I was feeling a lot of resistance, I'd put the timer on. And when it dings, get up. Right. So did you mostly write in the morning? Can you yeah. just get home at 7.30 at night and bang out a chapter or write a scene? I didn't write and- at night. I'm not a great r- night writer. I'm mm. so much better in the morning or during the day. And I'm one of those people that has great concentration at a Starbucks. Not everybody is like that, but I find the ambient noise very helpful to the writing. I just focus. Do you have any superstitions? No, I actually really don't. That's interesting. It's an interesting question because I know, I guess some people do. I was thinking about, sometimes I used to put up post-its and um, I stopped doing that. You know, I You do wanted- have icons around your desk though, right? What, what are Pardon? your icons? You do have icons on your desk, around Not your desk? Not so much anymore. I kind of graduated a little bit Okay, where it's more natural for me. Well, tell me about that. So after a while, you is it almost like you didn't need your talesmans? You didn't need those reminders? You know, not so much, but I did have some. They've just kind of disappeared a little bit. But you did stop traffic once for a sign, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Can you tell us? I think it was during my some of my writer's block, and I was working at Universal Studios, and I came around the corner, and I saw a sign taped to like a telephone pole, and it said, just write. W-R-I-T-E. And I jumped out of my car in the middle of traffic and I took a picture of it. That was meant for me. And the other thing, you know, I'm of a certain age. There's going to be people listening to this that are much, much younger. But I think something that was so effective was, are you going to get to the end of your life and talk about what you could have done? And that would be a nightmare. That was a nightmare to me. I could have written this book. And I went, you just don't want this. You want to finish this book because your heart needs it. And you do not want that thing of non-completion. And I didn't. That was very scary to me to be one of those people like waxing poetic. Well, I could have done this. I could have done that. Um, And you know what? I just thought of a great story. I think your people might like to hear this. I was working- 
I was working in Malibu at a drug and alcohol rehab facility because part of what I do is helping people through therapy. And so I was on staff and I went to lunch with a guy who's a doctor, you know, like doctor, PhD in psychology, supposed to be so evolved. So we're finished lunch, we're walking out to the car and he says something about my book, or I said something about my book because at that point I was really working on it. And uh, he said to me, well, you know, Carrie, everybody has a story. Now, by the way, a lot of people have said that to me. I don't really like that comment, but a lot of people will say that. I stayed very calm. I said, you know what? You're right. Everybody does have a story, but not everybody gets up at five o'clock in the morning, puts their butt in the chair, writes for an hour and a half, and then drives 40 miles to work. And it shut him up. Bravo. It just shut him up. Because I was like, you're not doing that, buddy. You're not doing that. You're not getting up at five and writing on it. So that, so I went, oh, that's the answer for everybody. Yeah, everybody does have a story. Do you, do you get up at five o'clock and put your butt in the, in the chair? Later, we're going to go TP his house or soap his (laughs) windows. But why crush people's spirits? Let's just in general, we don't have to crush a person's spirit. And I hope he's not that doesn't talk to his patients that way. But I mean, for a therapist, it's just fascinating, you know, like to be, it's it's kind of a nasty thing to say. I agree. I agree. Talking about that and recalling past events and memories, Mm -hmm. was it easy for you? Did you have to just really spend a lot of time thinking? Did it all come flooding back? A little bit of this, a little bit of that? It wasn't difficult. This childhood had a profound effect on me, and I remembered so much detail. It was like I remembered all the scenes, like they were out of a movie. I just remember all of it. On the night after the murder, I was waiting on the curb for my mother in the middle of the school day because she's taking me to the dentist. She pulls up. She's staring straight ahead. My mother wasn't warm. I get in the car. And flat face, flat voice, looking ahead, she goes, we're not going to the dentist. Joni shot Johnny and he's dead. And that was it. I just sat there and I thought, well, my life will never be the same now. Wow. That's really what happened. She just dumped it right like that. And then it was on the news that night. Oh my Um, goodness. I'll remind you people, there was a trial. I'm not going to tell you the outcome. You have to read the book. (laughs) You really needed a big hug in that moment. And I want to hug you right now. This was not just a family friend. You and Joni were very close. And that must have been just heartbreaking. And also the way your mom told you was also like, it's almost like she was saying, don't you make a big deal of this because I can't handle it right now. So here's the info. And by the way, Carrie, you're raising yourself from now on because this is too big. Yeah. I mean, very much so. And there was so much turmoil in the house. I got myself put into the hospital to get out of the house. That's a whole, that's probably a movie too. You know, that is so wild what you did. (laughs) It it was very desperate. And I should just briefly explain, I had a little bit of flu and I noticed that when I got the flu at 13, I got more attention. Mm -hmm. So I kept holding the thermometer under warm water and they felt like, oh my God, we better get her to the hospital. We don't know what's wrong with her. And so I went, I went for it. 
and there wasn't anything wrong with me. But I got myself into the hospital and I had the best 10 days of my life because I was taken <laughs> out of the house and I was given all this attention by nurses, orderlies, and doctors. And they released me and said, we don't know what happened. We don't know what was wrong with her. I call it girl interrupted. Yes. And Carrie, by that point, you had drawn me in and I was so in love with this girl interrupted. And I wasn't even mad at you for what you did for 10 days. <laughs> I was just like, oh, please let her stay longer. I really felt for you. And it comes across in your writing. It was wild to read. And JFK got assassinated while I was in the hospital. And I love that you had become like family there. So the nurses and the orderlies were watching the TV in your room. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Well, is she? Well, no, you were older, so you could have watched I was 13. it. Yeah, yeah you were 13, so you could have watched the coverage. You know, another thing that I was thinking about where your memory came back so easily. Because of the type of child that you were, you didn't just kind of walk through life. You were very much like, I'm Loretta Lynn, this door, it's a stage. Mm -hmm. You noticed all the details because you knew at some point you were going to be telling this story, I think. You know, you might be right. I would just soaked it in like a sponge. Yes. I knew none of it was normal. Carrie, would yeah. you do me... And the writers out there, a favor. And could you please read the last page of your book? It's entitled Epilogue Three. Epilogue Three Breaking Bad Curses. And then each <clears throat> chapter has a quote. So this quote is Curses are like chickens, they always come home to roost. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here it is, very short. I discovered an innate built-in thing about curses. They beg to be broken. During the writing and researching of this book, I came upon an old Chinese proverb, the curse has a cause. I don't know. I'm still ruminating about the whole thing. If I am afflicted at all, it is probably that I have been cursed with a freakishly good memory, which can be a recipe for nonviolent torture. Cause or no cause, during the time period that I wrote this book, a few curses were broken. In 2005, the Chicago White Sox broke their 86-year curse of Shoeless Joe and won the World Series. In 2006, Julia Dreyfus won an Emmy, breaking the much-talked-about Seinfeld curse. And while accepting the award, she said, I'm not one who believes in curses but curse this. <laughs> and finally, it won't make any headlines, but it might inspire. In 2015, I broke the Freeman family curse as if it ever really existed. How did I do that? I wrote a book. It only took me 40 years. The end. Carrie, I love that so much. And I want all our writers out there to know, even if you have a curse, you can finish your screenplay, you can finish your script, your book, your work in progress, your one woman show, you can do it. Carrie, I, I had no idea. We've just been passing each other in the neighborhood and you just don't know 
what's behind people, what, you know, what they've all gone through. And I, for one, am so glad that you've written this book. And can you please share with everyone out there where they can get the book? And also you have a YouTube channel and any social medias. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I'm selling my book off this website. So you just have to click purchase and it all happens through PayPal. So you want to go to you know, the HTTP slash slash www.thecomicsdaughter.com. No apostrophes. It can be all lowercase, thecomicsdaughter.com. That's where you'll find all kinds of things about this book and a way to purchase it. And, and I'm doing that for a personal reason. There's a personal reason why it's not on, on Amazon. Now, Got it. No worries. My YouTube channel, I'm very careful about because it is a left-leaning political channel, and I don't want to offend anybody. I respect their people that don't have my beliefs. Uh, But it's called My Left Ear. Carrie Freeman, My Left Ear. If you lean in that direction, you will probably like the channel. Okay, got it. There is one thing that I do, because I've been coaching people for many, many years, is I help writers. And I do it through my coaching and through hypnotherapy. So if you would ever want to contact me, this would be the email. And it's all like lowercase, you know, no apostrophes, carries left ear at gmail.com. Carries left ear at gmail.com. And so those are the two contacts I really want you to have. My Instagram is just pictures. Nothing that interesting. You know, I've tell you something. I'm such a creative that I'm not a good marketer. Mm, yeah. You know, and the and people that market, they have a skill. And not only do I not have the skill, I don't even want the skill. That's how much of a creative I am. <laughs> so I probably hurt myself a little bit, you know. Uh, no, I understand. It's like you do all the work and then you have to do the marketing. One quick question before we wrap up, and this has to do with me. I have done hypnotherapy and I go under in like two seconds. Some do. people do. Some people now, do. A hypnotherapist told me that was a sign of intelligence. <laughs> were, they, were they just trying to make me feel good? Well, you know, I see it as a sign of suggestibility. Suggestibility, uh, okay. Means means you're receptive. Mm. Uh, you're receptive. And I think that relates to self-trust and intelligence. There because you go. Well, the ones you. with resistance are doubting and they're questioning and they're watching. But like uh. you just come into it like willing. To me, that's a sign of intelligence. I mean, I, I figure I'm here. I want it to work. Let's let's go with it. The other people I can work with, but it's not as easy. And um, you feel people have expectations. Sometimes it just really works beautifully. But I've also had people that, I don't know, the rapport wasn't there. You know, yes. it happens. They came in yeah, to test. And it's not a good idea to come in and test. I'd say, if you get in the room with a new hypnotherapist, if you really enjoy talking to them, stay. And if you really don't, go find somebody else. Because it's really about rapport. Do I yes. like this person? Do I feel safe with this person? And then that's yes. it. Cool. You know, Carrie, 
Yeah, I've had so much fun. I'd love for you to come back and give us updates on the comics daughter. And thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good week. That's a wrap for the Writer's Hangout. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and thrive. Till we get to hang out again, keep writing. The world needs your stories. The Writer's Hangout is sponsored by the Page International Screenwriting Awards. Executive producer, Kristen O'Vern. Producers, Terry Sampson and Sandy Adamitis. Music by Ethan Stoller.